Thank you for tuning in to Femininity's first podcast episode, The Black Female Experience. Before we begin, we would like to address a few things. Firstly, this episode was recorded at the start of May before the current events in the Black Lives Movement. We decided to release this podcast early to amplify Black voices at this crucial time. If it seems like we are making light, I can assure you, we are not. Second, we have made recent changes to our platform. We have evolved from Power Panel to Femininities. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under F-E-M-I-N-I-N-I-T-E-A-S. Lastly, we are just a group of women who are trying to learn, grow, and support other women from all walks of life. Thank you for all you do to help us learn and grow by sharing and teaching. And with that, let's dive right in. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Femininity. I'm here with Glenda and Lena. Say hey. Hey. Hey, guys. We're super excited to bring you guys today's episode and to uh, give a brief introduction of what we're talking about today. uh, Lena is going to bring us right in. Yeah, so thank you all for tuning in to one of our favorite podcasts that we're going to record. We have Amaka on today. She's one of my favorite people. She's so interesting, Is does a lot of um, amazing work and activism. And I actually met her at a social innovation um, kind of project camp kind of thing. And we both connected there. And I just learned so much from her through our first few conversations. And I said, I feel like we really need her on the podcast because people will love to hear what she's saying. And people also just need to hear about a Black woman's experience in Canada. We do not get enough representation of them. So I just want to hand it over to Amaka and like let her introduce herself. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, everyone, uh, for bringing me on the podcast. I'm very excited to be a part of this wonderful uh, project. Um, yeah, my name is Amaka. Uh, I met Lena uh, at the Reimagine Health Program uh, SFU Radius, um, and we definitely had some wonderful conversations uh, during our first few meetings, and I'm excited to be here today. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course. We really want to know, um, we're so fascinated about literally everything, but um, it's particularly about your background and your activism and, you know, why you feel like talking about these issues is so important. Um, Yeah. So, so why, why, why do you think so? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So for me, I am of Nigerian origin. Uh, My family is from Nigeria and West Africa. Uh, My parents uh, immigrated to Canada during the late 70s, uh, and I have two older brothers as well. So just having that uh, experience as a first generation um, child uh, has definitely been an experience to say the least. Uh, I grew up in a small town on the lower mainland called Ladner. It's located in South Delta, very, very small community. Um, one of those towns, you know, you walk by and people say good morning, that that type of environment. Um, and also at the same time, while it was a great place to grow up, um, it also had some issues for me, uh, predominantly being a white neighborhood. Uh, so definitely my experiences as a child growing up, uh, going to elementary school, going to high school, just having those different experiences um, because I stood out. Um, and standing out as beautiful as it is, um, going through all of those certain experiences has really shaped 
me to the person that I am today and wanting to speak about these issues because I feel like these issues are not uh, presented enough. They're not talked about enough. Um, and, you know, I know there's another little girl out there somewhere that looks just like me um, that is going through these issues and is like, I'm, I'm alone, you know, and I, I hated that feeling growing up of being alone. Um, you know, I experienced bullying as a child. Um, I um, experienced sort of neglect as well as a child. Um, so many different issues. I can give you even an example as well. Um, I remember being in, I believe it was the fifth grade. I had two incidents. So the first one, I remember um, a boy that sat across from me, a white boy that sat across from me, we were coloring one day. So we ended up coloring and, you know, I'm trying to draw a rainbow and do all these other things. And then uh, the boy across from me comes across a brown crayon. Um, so I believe we were all sharing. So I said, okay, can I use that after you? He said, oh, why would you? He's like, oh, your skin kind of looks like this color. He's like, you know what? I wouldn't want to be this color because brown is a color of shit. So <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So um, that was definitely an awakening for me, not that I hadn't experienced issues like that even younger. Um, so being younger than 10 years old, I had even also experienced other issues um, as well. I remember another particular incident when I went to the dollar store with my mom, we were just shopping around, I was looking at toys or something. And then an older white man comes up to me and says, did you just take that? And as a child, wow. yes, wow. It, was, it was, it was, and as a child, I didn't quite understand what was going on. It wasn't until we actually left the store that I told my mom what happened. Um, and, you know, she ended up saying, next time that happens, please make sure to tell me. And I, I didn't understand why at that point. This mm -hmm. honestly breaks my heart hearing your experiences, um, particularly because people have this false misconception that in Canada, there is no racism. And mm -hmm. I think for a child, especially a child, to be going through experiences like you mentioned, um, is just absolutely dehumanizing. So as a child, what, what, what were the feelings you carried about yourself and your personhood um, and about your background? Like, uh, how, how did you navigate that and how did you feel about yourself? It definitely had a negative impact on me as a child. Um, you know, just again, that standing out feeling of everything's different about me. My skin color is different. My hair texture is different. Um, you know, just that feeling of, am I not enough? Am I not able to be a child? I really think that a lot of times, um, you know, people say that, oh, kids are cruel, kids are mean, but there are deeper issues stemming from this because I do believe that in order for that child to have said something to me, it must have come from somewhere else. And I think a lot of times we don't actually acknowledge that it comes from somewhere else. We just kind of let, oh, kids will be kids. You know, kids say things, kids can be mean, but we really need to actually look at these deeper issues to see why are children saying these things? Mm -hmm. Who is the person or who is the figure in their life that is making it okay to make comments like this? Um, you know, so I, I, as a child, definitely had a negative impact on me and the way I saw myself. Um, I can definitely say that there were times where I struggled with my appearance and um, feeling like I'm not beautiful or feeling like, um, you know, I'm, it's like I'm almost not human. It's, that's literally what it, what it can feel like when um, people make comments like that or say things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it's so, like Lena said, it's heartbreaking to hear that. And uh, how, I'm wondering, how did your mom and like your parents and your, and your brothers kind of, did they help you through some of these experiences and like, uh, like how to navigate these situations? Like, 
being part of your upbringing, stuff that, you know, you must have been taught earlier on that other, you know, white kids that you went to school with don't have to worry about. Yeah, I just kind of want to jump in on that question, because I'm like also wondering, was there a point or like an age where you realize that the feelings and experiences that you were going through were probably not something that a child should have been going through? Yeah, I would definitely say, um, so to go back to the first point, I'll reach both points. Um, so the first one being, did my family help me through? Definitely. Um, I come from a very strong cultural background in my family. Being a Nigerian is, if you if you see people from Nigeria, we are so proud of our culture. We are so proud of where we come from. And um, it's, it's a truly a beautiful culture. And I'm proud to say that I am of Nigerian origin. Um, and I believe having that instilled in me as a young child definitely helped all of those cultural um, notions, all of those different things of knowing that this is where you come from, this is your language, these are the things that we do in our culture. Um, but again, at the same time, being a child, it's really hard. Uh, while you want to hold on to those things, it's very hard as a child to be able to understand, okay, I'm proud of myself, or but why is it that other people see me this way? Um, you know, because your parents and your siblings can't be with you 24-7. You know, you have to go to school. You have to be out in the world on your own at some point. So definitely they helped me through it, but it was still a lot of um, going through it as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, my heart like just breaks as I'm listening to these stories. But I understand that because, you know, as a child, like it's hard to form like a solid or a formal conceptualization of your identity so I can imagine how um, how much of a struggle that would have been like since like you said that you went to probably a majority predominantly white school and you might may have not seen as many familiar faces or someone to identify with to like reinforce like that you know you're you know you're different from everyone else but like why was that type of thing mm -hmm. you know? yeah and that's a great point, Glenda. And I just want to add to that and say for a lot of children with um, kind of two cultures, like you're you're in another country, but your family originated from somewhere else. Um, it can be very difficult to meet the expectations of your own family and your culture. But also you want to fit in. You want the kids to like you at school. You don't want to be the kid that nobody wants to pick. And so that like like the bullying and all of those experiences um, it can really also sometimes push you away from your culture because you associate it with that. So I'm wondering if that was ever something that happened to you or were you always still maintaining like that strong connection? I think that I was always maintaining that strong connection. I felt home was a very safe space for me in terms of being my true self. Um, so while I was at school, while there would be those difficult days of, you know, either kids making fun of you or different topics coming up, I would always long to say, I can't wait until I can go home and I can just be myself in my truest form. Um, so, but definitely again, you know, for example, if I'm to bring my lunch, so I would have uh, cultural, culturally Nigerian dishes to bring to lunch, you know, kids would be asking me, oh, what's that? Or that smells funny or, um, you know, what goes into that? All of those different types of questions, you know? Um, so I think there's two sides to, to, eat, to it. Um, I do think in, it, it formulated itself in, in other areas of my life as well. Mm hmm. That's that's really great to hear that you had that strong support system, which a lot of children might not have. And uh, could, they could be going through this alone. I'm curious to as a 
as being a female, did that also change your experience um, compared to young Black men? I would definitely say so. Um, just talk about the topic of um, hair is a very big topic. Mm-hmm. Um, if, we, if we're going to talk about um, a lot of African culture or uh, Black women and hair, it's a very big topic. I feel as though, um, you know, with men, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it's a quick trip to the barber shop and you buzz it off or you cut it off um, and you don't really have to worry about that sort of thing. But for me being a girl in my culture, it was always, you know, your hair needs to be done. Your hair needs to be kept um, a certain way. Your hair needs to be uh, presentable. So I definitely think in that sense, there were a lot of other issues that went into it also as well, body image as well. Um, Definitely uh, just even being sexualized from a young age as well as a black girl, as a black young girl was definitely something that I also had to deal with as well. You know, being nine, 10, 11 years old and then older men are coming to you to try to talk to you and all of those other sorts of things that people generally don't like to talk about or like to ignore the fact that it happens. So I definitely think there are, um, while young black men definitely have their own experiences, black women also have very different experiences when it comes to those different things. Yeah, that's like, uh, it makes my skin crawl to hear about like men coming up to you at such a young age, like just makes me sick to my stomach to think about. Um, Do you feel like um, that uh, pressure, did you feel any pressure rather to conform to some of these like, you know, Western white beauty standards? Like, were you ever like pressured to not wear your hair naturally, always wigs or weaves and stuff like that? And like skin lightening products, I hear a lot of uh, hypes about them sometimes. And it's just like the amount of pressure to conform to something that is like not, you know, like, <laughs> just I guess I just have a hard time wrapping my head around how people cannot see these uh, these qualities, like your beautiful melon in the hair, like, is it's beautiful thing in itself. So did you have like a lot of disconnect hearing those pressures versus like family pressures to like maybe keep embracing your natural hair and stuff like that? Yes, definitely. Hair is something that has been a big part of um, my experience as a Black woman growing up. I would say up until the age of about seven or so, uh, my hair was natural, long, natural, um, you know, just kind of let it grow however it was growing. And then I would say I got my first relaxer. And for those people, perhaps if you don't know, a relaxer is a chemical substance that is used to relax the cuticle of your hair. So essentially what it does is it straightens the hair um, chemically. So I remember getting my first relaxer at eight years old and I hated it. Um, You know, relaxers have never been a great experience for me. They've always been very painful for me. And I remember getting the first one and I just was thinking to myself, is this supposed to hurt this much? Why am I, why, why are we putting my hair? You know, I looked at when I was that young, I would say, oh, my hair, it's great. I love my hair, you know, but I think that um, a lot of times there's also pressure on parents, pressure on my mom, definitely as well. For her, she has internalized that, okay, uh, kinky hair is not beautiful. Natural hair is not beautiful. It needs to be straight. It needs to be permed, right? So, um, you know, my mom definitely would enforce that, oh, you're beautiful. But there's also that internalized racism that happens as well, where you think because other people are viewing you to say, oh, you're ugly, your, um, your hair is not nice, your hair is unruly, it's wild. So when you're hearing these comments, as much as you want to, float above all of these pressures that are put on you, 
it's still internalized. And that is honestly the most insidious thing about racism and about systemic issues, because it finds itself in places you would never expect. You would never expect. And it truly is generational and it truly can carry on to the young generation. So for me, when I got my first relaxer, I didn't want another one after that. But of course, you know, we're going to make that trip to the salon. I'm going to get that relaxer. It wasn't until I was maybe about, um, and then of course there were um, weaves and things like that, that I did wear uh, for some parts throughout high school. Uh, And then eventually it wasn't until I was in my junior or at 16 that I said, you know what, I'm done. I'm going natural. Wow. Um, I'm curious as to when you did go through the process of relaxing your hair, were you treated differently? That is an interesting question. Um, I feel as though, to be honest with you, that I wasn't. Um, I feel as though I was still treated the same that I would have been when I was natural at a very young age uh, initially. Um, So I don't think it necessarily changed how I was treated. And I think, again, it's just because of that I stood out. So regardless of whether my hair was straight, my hair was curly, it didn't matter. At the end of the day, I stood out. Um, So I don't think it changed the way I was treated. Um, Definitely, even within family members, too, you would often hear comments of if your hair is um, so what what would happen is you maybe need to get a relaxer, let's say every six weeks or so. So if you skip that appointment Mm -hmm. or if your hair is just left to grow, somebody might say to you or even people in in your community might say to you, oh, what are you going to do with your hair? You know, so it became this thing of why do I constantly have to, why can't I just let my hair grow? Why can't my hair just, everybody else's hair is growing and is just being left to flourish? Why can't mine? So it's definitely, again, that internalized notion that our hair is not beautiful. You need to do something with it so that it is acceptable and other people are able to actually accept it. From that um, general experience of you, um, maybe your family had kind of internalized these ideas of what, you know, um, beauty should be. Do you think that now um, young Black women have it easier in a way because they're so maybe exposed to social media platforms and like there's more um, there's more um, exposure to being proud of your identity? Do you think that it's a lot different for women now than it was for you? I think up? it has changed in some senses, definitely with the exposure of social media. Instagram has blown out of proportions when it comes to a lot of uh, issues. However, I do think that that systemic portion of this issue has not changed because I remember hearing, I believe it was last year that New York just passed a law saying that it is now unacceptable to fire somebody because they have natural hair or um, other places that are now just beginning. Why should, my question that I struggle with the most is why should there be a law for somebody to be who they are? Why? I feel like people do not ask these questions enough. People do not think about these things enough. Why is there a law? So the way that my hair grows out of my scalp because it's unacceptable for to you because you don't like it, you have to make a law about it so that I can get a job, so that I can pay my bills, so I can put food on the table. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. So while I do think that there is that exposure, definitely when I was growing up, there was limited exposure. But now with all these social media platforms coming through, it's great to see and I love it. But there still are other deep rooted issues that need to be resolved before major change can be made. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think people often think we've progressed so much, but then you remember laws like this and you're like, no, we have not. Um, I'm also just 
curious in terms of um, beauty and the tokenization of black women going on right now. Um, in my opinion, I've seen a lot of brands kind of just add one black woman to their marketing uh, strategy to show that they're inclusive or diverse. Um, and, but meanwhile, they have like 40 white women as well. Um, and in makeup shades, there's, there's maybe one dark shade and the company is a multi-billion dollar uh, company. So when these kinds of things are going on, from your, in your opinion, like how can they improve on diversity, but also not tokenize and uh, like fetishize black beauty as well? Definitely. I do think in order for true change to be made when it comes to beauty standards, we need to actually be putting these people who are experiencing these issues on those platforms that are making these decisions. And I think until that happens, I'm not sure if there's going to be much change. I know we're seeing sprinkles of Black women here, sprinkles of Black girls there. You know, it's, it is nice to see, but at the same time, it's not enough because it's essentially, you know... I almost want to say it's almost like these companies are feeling like, okay, people are making a big deal about it. So we need to put one black girl. So they'll shut up. Mm -hmm. You see, so I think it's definitely a pacifier. It's definitely something that is just used to say, okay, we did it. Can we move on now? Can I get back to what I was doing before? Um, exactly. So yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree that the the lack of representation and like it literally is just a, you know, one of those quota things like a lot of brands are like, OK, we have, a, you know, one sort of Asian looking girl. We have a black girl. We have a redhead and we have like four other white girls. We're good. We're set. That's all we need. <laughs> and it, I think it's ridiculous. But I think also kind of touching back to what Glenda was asking about uh, uh, social media and like Instagram helping with this. I know that some of these brands, uh, especially all hail Rihanna with Fenty, um, dropping all of these great shades and having like actual like people and influencers and like actual ambassadors for their brand speaking to like size inclusivity to the skin color range do you think that like that platform has the possibility to encourage growth for these industries in that direction of like shade inclusivity definitely um fenty is a great example of how inclusivity and um just being able to celebrate all different shades, all different body sizes. I really do think that uh, Rihanna's platform has done a great job of that. But at the same time, I would like to see more. You know, um, I would like to see more in a lot of the beauty brands that don't bring that forth and that um, they just put one black girl here or one black girl there. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I would also like to talk about the fact that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes when we do see that uh, black women are being included in all of these different beauty platforms, it's almost usually in the sense that this person might have lighter skin, this person might have a looser hair texture. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do think that there also needs to be issues addressed when it comes to this as well, because oftentimes, usually even on TV and the media, um, who are we often seeing in TV shows? We're seeing light-skinned women with looser textured hair. And again, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I would also like to see more inclusion in the media, more inclusion in TV shows so that people who, these young girls that are growing up are able to see, oh, you know what? I can actually relate to that. Um, so for example, with um, Issa Rae's platform as well. So um, I remember when Awkward Black Girl came out on YouTube, that was a great uh, start to, to something amazing. And now with her show as well, Insecure, I do think with more shows like that um, and more inclusiveness like that, that we can definitely see some more change. That's, that's some great, uh, 
advice, I guess, for brands and companies that really should shift and change their policies. And I think not just do it because they're filling a quota, like you said. Um, I'm really interested in knowing, as a, as a Black woman, uh, a lot of the Black women that are in pop culture, like you said, are typically lighter skin or um, have this certain aesthetic. And in your opinion, was that also a big factor that affected you as a growing like a growing black woman um, to look up to someone like Beyonce or or these these women that are put on a pedestal? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah, I would definitely say it had an effect on me as a child for sure. I love Beyonce. Don't get me wrong; she's definitely <laughs> one of my favorite artists. Um, but definitely, just constantly seeing this repetition of light skin, light skin, light skin, loose hair, loose hair. You know, it becomes cyclical in the sense that your brain is you're essentially being brainwashed to think that okay if everybody I'm seeing on tv is like this or if everybody that I'm seeing represented and celebrated looks like this but I don't look like this there's something wrong with me Mm -hmm. um so I I definitely would say it had an effect on me as a child definitely as a child for sure I would say that you know there would be times where I would say oh you know I wish I had looser hair or um I wish you know like my shade of brown was lighter, you know, just sort of that feeling of inadequacy. Um, and and truly, I do think it is, it's, it's frustrating and it makes me feel as though, uh, you know, the fact that companies and uh, corporations, they exploit at the expense of uh, Black women and Black people, to be honest with you, um, the, the fact that that is exploited, it, it really frustrates me. It really frustrates me. A hundred percent. And and do you think growing up and um, being told that there's a certain way you should wear your hair to get a job, but now there's women, like white women or women of other cultures who are wearing those hairstyles that you couldn't get a job for? Like, where, like could you just give us some insight into cultural appropriation versus appreciation and, and that whole side of it as well? Definitely. Um, So there's quite a a debate actually in in the Black community or in the African community in the African diaspora about cultural appropriation. Some people don't see a problem with it. Other people are quite upset about it. And then there's people in the middle to say, you know what, I'm neutral about it. I think for me personally, where my issue lies is when I'm seeing hairstyles that I used to get made fun of. For example, um, my grandma, when I was a child, she came from Nigeria to you know, babysit me and all of that. And she would do traditional Nigerian threaded hairstyles. One of them we called shuku. So it essentially looks like a crown, right? Um, it's this beautiful hairstyle. And there's so many different renditions of it. And, you know, I would get to go to school and I would get made fun of for that. Or for example, if I'm to wear my hair in bantu knots or if I'm to wear cornrows, there's always this notion of, oh, you know, if you're going to go for an interview, maybe put, maybe straighten your hair. Mm-hmm. Maybe you put your hair in a in a different, more palatable hairstyle so that you may be more likely to get this job. And even to give you an example as well, when I had just graduated from university and I was looking for work, um, I, you know, and I used to actually cut my hair quite often, even to the point where I would even shave. I shaved all my hair at one point. Um, I just liked the style of it. So I remember one time I got a very interesting haircut. I think it had sort of like a tapered look to it, but the back was quite low. So my mom was very concerned and she said, you know, you're looking for a job. And I said, yeah, I know. I know I'm looking for a job. She said, yeah, well, you know, you might want to maybe put some braids in or put something in. And not that that was coming from a place of 
my mom doesn't think I'm beautiful, but it's coming from a place of she's concerned for me and she's worried that because of the way I look, I'm not going to be able to make a livelihood for myself. Um, so I know it's definitely coming from a place of love, even though it's complex. And again, that internalized racism. Um, but definitely, I've even heard stories from friends as well saying that, you know, to get a job, I think there was even just a recent um, uh, issue of this as well. My friend was looking for a job at a restaurant. And, you know, it was okay, well, if you're going to work here, you need to wear heels and you need to straighten your hair. Wow. You know, so um, and there's been instances mm -hmm. of this over the past few years as well, um, even here in Vancouver, of people saying, OK, you need to wear your hair like this. You need to do this. But, you know, in some sense, it is like I can't wear my hair like that. My hair doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's just that reminder that you're feeling inadequate because, OK, if your hair can do that, your hair can do that. That's great. But mine can't. So what am I supposed to do? Just sit around and do nothing, you know? I think that really uh, resonates with this point of like, at the end of the day, when you go home, you can't just take off your blackness, you know? And I feel like what a lot of people that don't understand this concept miss is that, you know, you still are associated with those stereotypes or negative connotations. And that has not been solved. And mm -hmm. it can obviously hurt or seem like, you know, when, when a few people complain that like, oh, nobody has a right to tell me what to wear or what to do. It's like, but you're, but black women get told every day. Yes. So where's the energy to help out with that? You know? So, um, so what is your opinion then on white women or women of other cultures taking on those traits? Definitely. So there's a lot of, this issue is quite complex and it's very historical because if we are to go, um, again, also I'd like to reiterate as well, I am coming from the African diaspora experience. And I would like to point out because oftentimes people tend to group everybody together when it comes to black people or to African people or people of African descent, we all like to group everyone together and say, oh, you're all the same. But no, I can guarantee you that there are different experiences for different people in the diaspora or people in the native land in Africa currently. Mm -hmm. So I would like to point that out first so that there's that differentiation. Um, but if we are to talk about, for example, in the um, African American community, for example, as well, right? So if we think about that, you know, we can see how a lot of those issues are affecting them differently. Um, and sorry, you're, sorry, can you remind me of the other part of the question again? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> when people of other cultures take on traits that Perfect. you get stereotyped and um, systemically uh, oppressed from, I guess. Perfect, thank you. Okay, mm -hmm. that reminds me. All right, so if we go back historically, so if we think about the African-American experience as well, right? So um, if we go back to slavery, so there were actually laws where um, a lot of uh, African-American women were, when as slaves, they were told, okay, you need to cover your hair, you need to cover it up, you need to either cut it short, um, you need to wear certain items, you can't look like you stand out um, a lot of the time as well. So, you know, when it comes to hair, when it comes to these things, these are things that we are ridiculed for. These are things that we have been made fun of for. So when somebody who is not of that background is now coming to take on these traits. Okay. Um, I've even heard of a term called blackfishing. I'm not sure if you guys are aware yep. of that as well, where you will see a person that is clearly not of African descent or clearly not black. And they have the most tan skin. They have cornrows. They have maybe a certain style that is attributed um, or that comes from uh, black culture. 
and you know they're getting all these views they're getting all of these likes and they are profiting off of what we are actually being deemed as not human for so it's very frustrating and i do still struggle with this issue because for me it's just like okay when i do it it's not acceptable but when somebody else who doesn't look like me does it it's acceptable but then that same thing was something that i grew up with so it, it's it's a very complicated um issue and it's almost like again that feti- um being fetished um as well is an issue yeah i just want to like agree with you 100% because like you said people can want to appreciate a culture and adopt certain aspects of it but then in doing that like in say in me not being a black woman but like wanting to braid my hair for example i may want to adopt like the features that i think are like socially acceptable or like trendy or whatever but then at the same time there's this whole timeline of history and baggage and no recognition of that at all so you kind of like alleviate and remove yourself from like all the historical um uh challenges that have happened and it's just insane to me that it still goes on and it's still so entrenched in like institutions and policies that um ask you to change yourself and still conform to something that's predominantly acceptable which is like aka um white privilege and white acceptability yeah Yeah. i'm just curious on like thinking of like the future and how to kind of get away from some of this um you know specifically hairstyle um based racism if you want to call it that um do you think that having people you know because you say there's a bit of a, a everybody's on one side of the argument or maybe in the middle um, in terms of cultural exchange and growing, like we're becoming so globalized that you're getting these cultures, like even you go into other places where there's like other diasporas, like in uh, South America, there's some big African diasporas, stuff like that. You get these melding of cultures and kind of this acceptance. How do you have any idea how we would be able to get there? I know it's such a big question and I'm sorry, yeah. but like getting there. Cause like you said, it's like a really, it's a really weird place to walk. Like as a person, like I'll straight up say it. I think, you know, like African beauties is definitely a thing. I think it's all beautiful. I think like, honestly, there's beauty in every phenotype and every culture. Um, that's what makes it so magical and so unique is we all look so different that I, I can't understand why people hate other people for it. It drives mm-hmm. me insane. Um, but having these um, interchanges of style and kind of growth, because you see it a lot in some of these groups. Um, I don't know why I keep thinking Major Laser comes to mind <laughs> with some of the newer stuff you do. You get these um, musical combinations, but then in the mu- music videos, you get dancing. And you see, mm-hmm. like, you, I think they have, like, a couple um, Black girls in there. They have, a, I think, a Latina girl, and they have a white girl who often has braids in her hair. And that's cool, right? But is it is it cool? Is that like a good way of going about kind of making these hairstyles more known, more accepted, and like more prominent to maybe be welcomed? Kind of mm-hmm. devil's advocate and very long-winded, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. You know what? I think that cultural exchanges is, is beautiful. I think that um, us being able to share those things, whether it's food or it's hair or it's clothing, I think it's all beautiful. But I do think that the deep-rooted issue for a lot of us, or for me personally, is just not knowing the historical context behind it. Not knowing that in order for 
me to wear my hair like this or for another person to wear their hair like that, their great, great grandmother had to go through something horrible so that I can now wear that hairstyle or directly influenced to me that, okay, I went through this. So you know what? I'm proud of this now. So Mm -hmm. I do think cultural exchange is beautiful. And I think that for me personally, honestly, at the end of the day, I don't have a problem with somebody wearing cornrows. I don't have a problem with somebody wearing braids. Just don't call it something new like boxer braids or don't yeah. call it you know, like Kardashians, for example. Don't call don't it something it. brand new. <laughs> yeah. Don't rebrand something that is already there. Yeah. Um, it's just that notion of feeling, feeling like I'm being stolen from, mm-hmm. you know, stealing parts of my identity that you want to pick and choose. That looks kind of cute. I'm going to take that that looks kind of cute. I'm going to take that. Oh, but the racism, the police brutality, the dehumanization, I want nothing to do with that. And I think, again, that is where the issue stems from. It's not so much that a lot of us have an issue with the hairstyles or the clothing or whatever. It's know where it comes from, know the history and don't rebrand another human being who Mm -hmm. has been given that right to rebrand somebody or to tell me where my history comes from when I fully well know where it comes from. I don't need anybody else to tell me or give me a different name for it. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think that even within like the current context of um, how uh, black men in America and in Canada are just so disproportionately represented in criminal justice systems. And again, like that's still happening in current day context. Still, like there are ways that we can work towards um, minimizing those numbers, but still it's not happening at a rate that you want it to. And instead people are, I see they're still jumping on trends that they find like appropriate too. So I, I see like the discrepancy in that and like the inaction when you want to appreciate a culture versus help them in their in their causes or in their, you know, uh, their initiatives to, yeah, for I, equality I think and equity. Yeah, it really also ties into just respect. Like, uh, you know, the absence of discrimination in itself does not mean it's respect either. Definitely. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And also just go to go back um, to the other point, talking about the uh, social justice system and incarceration and how Black men are disproportionately in jail, disproportionately um, given different sentences that are disproportionate to other races. Um, a lot of times as well, I, I, I'm just that inaction. And when I think about it, the inaction is intentional. The disrespect is intentional. There is no, and this is another, if I also go into another issue as well, just talking about um, the whole Black Lives Matter movement. So personal experience for me, when that movement started in Vancouver, and I believe it was 2016 or so, um, we had a lot of events that were going on, and I participated in those events. I performed at one of those events as well. At one of these events, after the performance, I was wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. And the number of people that would stop on the street to say, all lives matter, people literally getting very upset and almost to the point of yelling to say, all lives matter, why would you wear a t-shirt like that? The problem that a lot of people, and I I really want people to know this, people that are listening to hear this, is that, yes, of course, all lives matter. Every single human being on this earth has a right to life, has a right to respect, obviously. That's the obvious point. But what people actually fail to realize is that while all lives matter, why is it that Black people are disproportionately incarcerated? Why is it that Black people are disproportionately having a multitude of health issues. Why is it that Black people are disproportionately on the other side of uh, social determinants, whether that's income or all these other things? Why? We do not ask ourselves why. So that person that's yelling on the sheet to say all lives matter, it's like, I know that. But did you know that 
the reason I'm wearing this shirt is because it's disproportionate and because if all lives mattered, I wouldn't be wearing this t-shirt. But clearly all lives don't matter because why, why are my people dying? Why are my people suffering the way they are, you know? That's that's so powerful and so true. And I, I, I get the same like kind of reactions when I hear people say that and like coming from like a spot of white privilege, but also having put in the effort to try and inform myself of, you know, the privilege that I have and how like not having that and like how that affects my life. Like, I think a lot of it is just this like this white fear of somehow giving other people rights and like you know all of these things will somehow detract from our quality of life i don't understand where this logical jump like comes from <laughs> at all because it doesn't it doesn't take anything away from the experiences or like you're you're going to live your life just the same it's other people are just going to like literally be up to your standard of living the fact that people are threatened by that is like honestly so sad and it just like it's ridiculous that we have such such ingrained systemic racism still. Even in Canada, we have it. Like we like to pretend that we're like all great and holy. The first people that we screwed over were the indigenous people of Canada and the Chinese that came after. Basically anybody that's coming after, we've we've thrown some shit their way. <laughs> we never like to admit it because it's it's like embarrassing now, but I think it's so important to realize like for like white people <laughs> sitting in a spot of privilege you don't even think of the interactions that like you would have just going to the grocery store like walking outside down your block going to school like all of these little things um people just don't realize how ingrained it is and to so to say oh yes all lives matter okay but you're talking about the quality of life you're giving somebody clearly by the way that we're treating so many groups we're reflecting that we don't think all lives matter. And that needs to change. Goes <laughs> without saying it needs to change. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I just want to um, also hit on Amaka's point when she mentioned uh, healthcare. And I know the Black experience in health, um, particularly with strokes and heart disease and things like that, um, they don't believe Black women. And right now with the coronavirus going on and the yeah. pandemic, there have been multiple reports of women who had the symptoms and been denied the care or testing. And yeah, I just want you to kind of speak a little bit about that. Definitely. Um, this is definitely another topic that I'm very passionate about as well. Uh, when it comes to the experience of Black women in healthcare, I honestly believe that, again, that systemic racism that is happening, that is deeply ingrained in healthcare, because oftentimes what will happen is even in my own personal experience, you'll almost get the healthcare providers that are providing these uh, different uh, forms of care saying that, oh, you know, she'll be fine or you'll be okay, just go lie down for a moment and rest. But then on the other hand, if you get somebody from a different race or if you get a, a white woman being treated, it's, oh no, you need to uh, relax. You need to sit down. You need to hear some different forms of medication and, and try this or have you tried that? Why is it that when Black women are going to these health institutions that we are not being taken seriously, almost as if we're, again, that dehumanization of, okay, you're some, you must be sort of like a, a robot or you can get through this or I've heard that black people are really strong so they don't fall ill or um, that sort of mentality. And again, that also gets internalized in our communities as well. Um, just reading some of the articles that I did in the States as well, a lot of people that were being interviewed were saying that, oh, 
you know, black people can't get this, uh, we're immune to it. So again, that re-internalization of, oh, this isn't going to catch me. This isn't going to get me. I'm too strong for this. So if you're believing that and other people are saying, oh yeah, great, they're strong. You know, it, it turns into this, oh, I don't believe you that um, something's happening or you'll be fine if you just go and lie down. But a lot of those people who go and take that rest don't come back or they end up dying because nobody actually listened to them or in childbirth. There's, there's so many numerous cases of black women dying when it comes to childbirth. You know, of course there are complications when it comes to childbirth, but again, that question of why is it disproportionate? What are we not doing enough of? What are the health institutions not doing enough of? It's, it's a genocide because of that inaction. Um, a lot of these issues are a genocide. You don't need a machete. You don't need a gun to kill someone. You can clearly do that by just sitting down and not doing anything about it or sending that person away. Um, that's very powerful that you say that it is it is a genocide and that's exactly like that's exactly true um i think a lot of people also don't realize the like really dark history of like the medical profession when it comes to dealing with non-white people there's so much history of medical testing and you know all of these experiments stuff like that like just horrible stuff forced sterilization down in the states too of women going in for something that of course doctors aren't going to tell them what they're going to do no you're coming here you're doing this and then they come out and they've had forced sterilization, like stuff like that. It wasn't that long ago. And so like to remember that that's still like very, like it takes a long time to clean that stuff out of the teachings, out of the medical system, the, the way that it's set up. Um, do you find um, any sort of like distrust in the medical system within your communities? Cause I know that's uh, very prevalent in um, a lot of indigenous communities here because they've had similar experiences as well. Just that distrust of doctors with the, uh, you know, paternalized view on medicine of like, you'll do what I say, you don't need to know anything extra. And you know what, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, um, definitely. I can speak to that as well. Um, even just feeling sometimes like I need to be my own doctor or I need to take care of myself because I know that I'm in pain or I know that I'm feeling this symptom of something, but nobody's believing me. So um, I even read an article where um, I believe it was written by a black woman and she was saying that she actually had to go to the doctor for a particular issue. The doctor said, okay, uh, I'm not going to run this test. So she said, okay, well, you can write refusal on my report. And initially when that happened, when she said, okay, well, you can write a refusal on my report. The doctor said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll go ahead and test. Why is that? Because if something happens, that doctor will now be held accountable, right? So I think a lot of this has to do with holding people accountable. Under, uh, that education, that, you know, teaching others that just because somebody looks a certain way doesn't mean that they aren't human, doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to experience a lot of these illnesses the same way as other human beings are. Amaka, like you're spot on with that. I also like wanted to ask about, you know, because there's this whole perception that um, the healthcare system looks at uh, the black populations as being stronger for whatever reason, like how do you think that might've affected maybe um, your experience in like dealing with your men with supposed mental health issues if you had any did that would you have felt that you had less of an option to seek for help from the medical system when it comes to mental health i would definitely say um, again in my own african diaspora experience or being a first generation um child uh i would say that this part can come in two ways again that reiteration of 
uh, people not listening to us when we say, I don't feel well or something is going on. Can you help me figure it out? And them saying, oh, you'll be fine if you just sit down for a moment or take a rest. But then on the other part of that spectrum, from my experience, culturally, when it comes to mental health, a lot of times, a lot of African um, people or a lot of African diaspora people, when it comes to mental health, it's usually a topic more of that uh, of neglect when it comes to that. Um, I would say definitely now things are changing um, with all of the re-emerging, you know, social media and all of these things, knowing that other people are going through different things, but definitely think culturally mental health in my own experience um, or just in the community, the African community that I'm a part of, that cultural notion of, you know, what is that? What is mental health? You know, maybe perhaps when it, if we were back in the native land, it might have been that somebody was trying to put a curse on you or somebody was trying to, you know, sort of get back at you for something, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely still that also self-work that I think needs to be done, at least in the African diaspora experience um, of understanding the importance of mental health and making sure that it's looked after. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a great point and that the medical system is inherently built from a white person's perspective. I remember reading this article or a tweet and um, it was about this, I think, woman who had died because her family had called the paramedics, I think, and said, you know, um, you know, when should we take her to the hospital? And they said, well, when she turns blue. And then she said, my mom is black. She doesn't turn blue in that mm -hmm. sense. And they had no other offering of what another symptom could look like for for someone who just simply had, you know, a different skin color. Like, what does that what does that look like on, you know, a person of African descent or a person with a darker skin tone? And it really um, it really shows how even the perspective on, you know, symptoms, signs are all based on um, the white person's body. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. And I just want to uh, like also reframe that within the context of like the opioid crisis, which has been happening since 2016. There have been like um, pamphlets and guidelines created to detect the signs of overdose, but they've only been designed to detect, detect the signs in white skinned people. So say, for example, if you're overdosing and you turn purple or blue, you're not going to be able to see that on a darker skinned person. So there you go. Like you're missing out a whole demographic of, of, um, of people that, that might suffer an overdose, but may not ever be detected for it. And then therefore not attended to in time. Definitely. And just to speak to that as well. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, you know, we think of when a system is set up, who is setting up that system? Who is the system benefiting is it the, it's yeah. obviously going to be the person that wrote it, right? It's obviously going to be the person that sat down one day to say, hmm, if I was trying to diagnose an illness in somebody, okay, well, my skin looks like this. My body type is like this. So I'm going to write it like this without then including people who don't look like you. What about people who don't look like you? Um, you know? I, I think that's such a great point. And it reminds yeah. me of um, the whole topic of credentials and qualifications as well. And I remember at our Reimagine Health program, we had briefly talked about, you know, what imagine a course informing people about um, these kinds of issues. And it's like, but ultimately, the people with the most qual qualifications and academic experience are given that power. But at the same time, like non-white people are usually, um, you know, 
they don't have the same privilege to access that level of academia and qualifications and their lived experience isn't allowed to be considered equivalent. Um, in your opinion, you know, like in terms of academia and qualifications and credentials, do you find that um, being a black woman in the field in university or academia is it's also quite a difficult field to navigate? Yeah, I would definitely say um, it was a difficult field for me to navigate, especially being in a lot of anthropology courses or um, social justice courses. You know, you would have different opinions in a classroom and all of that sort of thing. Um, and just that notion of, okay, because I'm uh, educated, because I have all of this knowledge, you know, I'm the right person for this job, but not necessarily. What community are you going into? What environment do you find yourself? Who is in that environment? Again, I feel like people are not asking pe the actual people who have these grounded experiences and have these lived experiences the questions. You're not going to the community to say, first of all, do you even need this program I'm doing? Do you even need this grant? Do you even need this? Why is everything a handout? Why is everything? No, I'll tell you what you need. Why can't I tell myself what I need? Because I know myself better than anybody else. So why is it that you're you're not inside my mind, you're not inside my body? Why is it that you're telling me what I need and you take this and it, it doesn't make sense to me? Mm -hmm. It's it's almost as if, um, it's, it's almost just as insulting when people give you this and say, hey, these are the issues we want you to fix. And it's like, what? how do you know what our community is prioritizing, you know? Mm -hmm. And insulting in a sense where they're like, this is what they don't want to see from you anymore. Yep. You know, so here's some money, go deal yep. with it. Um, but the rest you can figure it on yourself. And, and I think you make such a great point about the fact that there is great power in, you know, empowering people in the community to lead that change themselves. They should be in charge of their own transformative change. They know their own experiences. And I think at the program we met, that's why, um, that's one of the programs that's kind of doing something like this, um, we met so many people of different backgrounds and it was all about giving your communities that power. Um, and in your opinion as well, do you think that um, power and change in that sense from a community perspective, uh, do you think the black community wants to do more of these initiatives, but they don't have um, kind of, I guess for lack of a better words, like, they're so busy dealing with all the oppression that like there's no time left to actually work on things that they want to. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think just being in that, being in this body or being in um, a black body in itself is already a burden. So, you know, I just have to, that, that intersectionality. So, okay, I'm a woman. And then on top of that, okay, I'm black. Okay. And then I have all of these other issues going on. It's, it's almost as if I can definitely say that a lot of people in the community almost feel like, how can I possibly add anything else to my plate? Mm -hmm. When I'm just trying to get through the day to day, how can I possibly add anything else to my plate? I think we've almost come to a point in today's society where sometimes you feel like, okay, well, I'm busy doing this. So I guess I'm just going to take the handout. Mm -hmm. But I think that in order for the, something to change, I do think that almost like a curse, it needs, that needs to be broken. I, I do think that 
a lot of these policymakers, a lot of these, um, even in the education system as well. Um, for example, it's like, how is it possible that it was in a second year university class that I'm learning about residential schools? Wow. How is that possible? Why wasn't I taught this mm -hmm. in elementary school? You know, I feel like that gap of education when it comes to what we actually teach people and what people are learning, people are ingesting that. Even sometimes if you don't even want to internalize it, you are subconsciously, you know? So definitely I feel like while um, the community definitely wants to mm -hmm. take the reins and do all these things, I feel as though there's been almost too many handouts and almost too many burdens placed. And until those first, those burdens need to be sorted. And then once those burdens are sorted, what is actually being experienced there is sorted, then I believe that change can be made or charge can be taken. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly right. Um, I think I was also just going to touch on uh, the point of we mentioned earlier, like your whole image of yourself, as a, you mentioned just now, intersectionality. And in terms of being a Black woman, you know, in the age of where certain Black features are being fetishized, um, mm -hmm. surgery is on an all-time high, lip fillers, BBLs, all these things are going on you know, what, what is your perspective on all of that? And mm -hmm. definitely, yeah, I can definitely speak to this. I would say definitely growing up again, when I talked earlier about um, definitely being over-sexualized as a child as well. Um, you know, when I remember being in the seventh grade and there used to be these, you know, kind of like these pants that everybody wear, it had like a one inch zipper or something like that. I couldn't wear those because they wouldn't fit quite frankly no matter how big the size was, it wouldn't fit. Um, definitely as a child, I was a bit heavier, um, definitely had some weight to me, definitely in like the lower region as well. My hips have always been quite wide as well. Um, and these are things that I used to get made fun of. I remember one time in high school, I was walking to my class and these two girls were saying the, oh my God, Becky, look at her butt, it's so big, you know, like all of these different things. So for me, I'm like, okay, is there something wrong with this body? Is there something not right with my body? You know, why is it that because I'm wearing a size, you know, 12 to 14, why is it that? And from a very young age too, I was wearing quite large sizes. It's like, okay, well, I guess it's not okay to be like this. So now when I see a lot of these surgeries happening, the BBLs or when it comes to butt surgeries or um, buttock surgeries or all those different things, I'm thinking to myself, but this is the exact same thing I was made fun of for. This is the exact same thing I'm being ridiculed for. So there is something else going on here because why would you want to be associated with a feature that is made fun of by that same person? It It's quite complex. And when I, we also go back to blackfishing as well. For example, you know, there's this notion that, okay, again, okay, so I'm going to pick the braids. I'm going to pick the butt. I'm going to pick the big lips, I'm going to get the lip injections, I'm going to pick the tan skin, but then I'm going to get rid of everything else so that, you know, I'll be this, you know, so-called uh, amazing person. But my my issue is, why is it that those exact same things that I was made fun of for, or that friends of mine that I know were made fun of for are now being seen as, okay, well, as long as I don't have dark skin, I'm going to take the features. Yeah, it's, it's, that's that fine line between celebrating and fetishizing like where is that coming from and why now yeah, I think it's also like I think it really just goes to show on the the priorities of um I guess okay how do I phrase this <laughs> the the 
the purpose of or like the direction of the male gaze is like obviously for uh, objectifying sexualizing and it always you know devalues brains over beauty so i think in and i don't know if you experience this if like people always comment on you know how great you look not about your it, like you know kind of start off conversations wondering if you're like smart do you speak english like first like basing everything off of your appearance as being some sort of sexualized other almost like it's do you do you ever feel like you're just literally just the piece of meat nothing else attributed Definitely. I can definitely speak to uh, experiences like that. Um, even you touched on saying, oh, you uh, speak English. And again, there's just that erasure of that history. Why do I speak English? Okay, well, let's think about it. For example, colonization is a very big, big part of why a lot of languages are spoken predominantly in this day and age. So when somebody says, oh, you speak English very well. Well, of course I did, because hundreds of years ago, British people came to colonize Nigeria and they brought English to Nigeria, you know? So a lot of times people tend to have that almost like people again have been brainwashed to think that, you know, oh, okay, this black girl, she looks like this. She, um, she does this, for example, you know, just that, that feeling of, okay, so I'm only my hair. I can even speak to an example. Um, one time when I was uh, at, at a job, for example, somebody introduced me and then they also said, oh, by the way, um, she has great hair. She changes it often, but no, you're introducing me at my job. So weird. You're, introduce you're introducing me at my job. Why am I being labeled as just the black girl with cool hair? No, I'm smart. I work hard. I, 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 I can empower myself. I do my job well. Why is it that I'm just being reduced to my looks? You know, um, I would definitely say that uh, I have experienced uh, situations like that before. And it's, it's, it's exhausting to be reduced to only pieces mm -hmm. and not being looked at as an entire person or not being seen as an entire person. Um, it's, it's quite, it's quite uh, a bit of a struggle there. Mm -hmm. And did you also growing up find any like, um, just like on a side note, my, my boyfriend, he grew up in, in Ghana and he moved to the States um, when he started university. And he had people asking him all the time when he mentioned he's from Africa, oh, you guys still live in trees there? Like, do you ever mention like where you come from? And people say like this, like super outdated, like you, you must know that like not everybody <laughs> lives in trees, like this like high level of just cultural unawareness and uneducatedness on like even the most basic levels. Oh, definitely. I could even speak uh, as well as in elementary school as well. I, I, that exact same comment of, I believe I had just returned from a trip uh, from Nigeria when I was in elementary school and people were asking me, oh, how was your trip? And I said, oh, it was a lot of fun. I saw my family and they said, oh, okay, well, does your family live in a hut? And I said, no, I'm pretty sure they live in a in an eight bedroom house. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's sometimes as, as frustrating as it can be. I sometimes tend to laugh a lot of those things off because at the end of the day I know where I come from and I know how rich and beautiful my culture and my people are so I find it very sad I almost feel sad for those people who don't have the uh, sort of the motivation to find out more you mm -hmm. know Google the thing you can look it up you can look up on Google and say oh okay this is how these people live but again it's that media that people are being fed I know mm -hmm. when I was um, quite young a lot of those world vision commercials yeah. running for hours and hours and hours on end and 
you know, you would see the the poor, sick African child with flies in their eyes. And, you know, I'm not saying that that is not a reality in some places in Africa, but that is not the entire reality. And I, I really wish that people would stop reiterating those same images and those same visualizations, because I believe that Africa is so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. I really like how you brought up those World Vision commercials because like growing up, that was basically all the exposure that I had. And I feel like growing up like outside of there and as a white person, that was the only exposure I got to like whatever the reality of Africa was. Like nobody really told mm-hmm. us anything about it and that's all we saw. So it was kind of like the not dominant, dominant, dominant narrative that I was exposed to. Um, but then now that I'm looking at it, and you see in uh, music and film now and, and all sorts of art forms, you're seeing such a, such a volume and quality and popularity of um, Black American and also African um, creators with music. Like they're basically what I'm trying to say is from the start and from the get go, you guys have been driving culture. You guys have been trying, driving everything cool basically (laughs) and everything um, creativity and value. Um, So I think it's like really important that like you, you guys have really found a way to take voices and the uniqueness and the like vibrancy that uh, especially if I, from what I found in African cultures and West African cultures, especially that vibrancy, that the fun, the joy um, into the limelight. And I think the rest of the world is starting to get a new type of dominant narrative from these communities. And I don't think everybody realizes how like, it's been there from the beginning. White people have been co-opting it. Yes, jazz, we stole that, rock and roll, we stole that too. All of this other stuff, but now you guys are, starting it from the beginning and taking it to the top, driving these this modern culture that is like North America as well. So what are your thoughts on on this direction? Yeah, I think it's it's so refreshing. You know, you take a nice tall glass of cold water, whatever kind of drink you like. Uh, honestly, it's it's that's how it feels to me. <laughs> it's refreshing. And I feel so overjoyed to see uh, a lot of these uh, things that I grew up with, people are starting to say, you know, I'll even walk into, um, um, I remember one time I was in Zara, I was doing some shopping and I was listening and I heard, I'm like, oh my goodness, is that an Afrobeat song? Is that, um, there's a popular artist by the name of DeVito, there's Burna Boy um, in Nigeria more specifically. So I'm walking around and I'm going to the grocery store and I'm hearing all these songs and it makes me feel so happy because I'm able to see, wow, okay, this is, I can definitely relate to this. I can easily relate to this. Um, and it's just nice to see that positive switch and that positive change. While there still are issues, it's it's just nice to see uh, a lot of African culture, a lot of my culture being brought into the limelight and being um, shared. And, you know, there's so many different um, African individuals as well who are on the rise and who are doing so well for themselves. And um, it's just nice to see that and to be able to, get that sense of resilience that my people have is I'm so proud. Um, It it truly makes me proud um, to see a lot of the positive changes that are happening. Wow. That's, that's so amazing to hear. And um, I wonder if you'd be able to share with our audience, any local projects or campaigns um, that are in Vancouver, perhaps, or Canada, um, or even globally that you think there should be more light shed on. Um, or artists or creatives, uh, I think we would love to hear about, we would love to hear about them. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of projects, um, I can even um, think, for example, when it comes to a lot of music, there's a lot of uh, local artists in Vancouver as well. I know that um, I believe it's called, I want to say Sweet and Sour. Um, they kind of do uh, currently uh, during the circumstances with social distancing. I know that they're doing a lot of lives on Instagram as well. Um, a lot of other local artists as well. Um, and also more recently, we even had uh, the African uh, Arts and Fashion Show. Um, so there were a lot of different performances, um, a huge celebration that it was. I even performed as well. I have a dance group uh, that's called Mau Dance. Uh, and it's just an expression of our culture through music, through art forms, through skits. Uh, and it's, it's just truly a lot of fun. Yeah. I just have to interject and say, Amaka has the best singing voice ever. And oh my God, what a pleasure to hear her sing. I, oh. Yeah, so if you guys ever want to find a really good singer, it's Amaka herself. You're over <laughs> yummy. Yeah, you missed yourself there, sis. Um, oh. She's just so talented. And I think on your on her Instagram, like you on her Instagram, she posts singing like quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of singing more recently. Um, I've had a lot more time at home, so I've had the time to do it. And uh, music has definitely been a huge part of my life. I would say um, it was always an outlet for me. Definitely. My mom put me into piano lessons from the age of five. Uh, so from there, that sort of took off. It turned into guitar lessons. It turned into the clarinet lessons. It turned into band. Um, I also was put into dance as a young child as well. So definitely, um, I would say as a child, those were my most treasured experiences being able to perform and I still am currently performing and um, just being able to express myself through art is it's definitely um, a great thing. Do you see yourself in the future going into the direction of singing perhaps? Yes. I, <laughs> I mean um, that's a great question. I have thought about it. Um, I mean if anybody's out there listening and wants to <laughs> sign me up <laughs> you can feel free to sign me girl up. Um, but it's, it's, for me, it comes from a place of, I just, I love to sing. I love music. I love to sing. Um, even if there doesn't end up being any, I guess, monetary situation that comes from it, I'm just happy to put my, my art form out there. What's your favorite song? My favorite song? That's a hard one. Um, I like anything by, I love Erica Badu. She's definitely one of my all-time favorite artists. Um, I also love D'Angelo, a lot of old school artists as well. Um, definitely uh, Burna Boy for yeah. Beats. Yeah, so many different ones. I have like a wide range. Maka, we have had such a great time talking to you today and we really appreciate and value all your insights on uh, the Black female African diaspora experiences. We touched on... I, like I think everything you touch on mental health, on social justice systems, on black fishing, music, everything. I want to give you the time right now to know about where to reach you um, through Instagram, yeah, Facebook, um, any my platforms. My Instagram page Go for is it. Max Coco Baby, so it's M A X C O C O B A B Y. Um, you can feel free to follow me there. It's more just um, a page. I do a lot of singing on there as well. Um, you can also follow myself and my dance group at Mawu Dance. That's M A w-u dance um you can catch up on a lot of our recent performances or we, where we might be performing next as well um and just yeah some few words for me as well um to those out there who are listening uh just remember to know who you are and know where you come from don't allow anybody to tell you where you come from don't allow anybody to 
make you feel as though you aren't uh, worth being on this earth. Uh, I just wanted to put that out there for anybody who may be struggling with any issues that you are worth it and um, you are seen and you are loved. Thank you so much, Amaka. I also just want to let our audience know that uh, please DM us on our social media as well. It's at our power panel. If you have any comments or concerns for Amaka or questions, or you want her back again on the podcast, because we would love that as well. Um, yeah, just hit up, hit us up with any suggestions that you. We have really loved having her as our first guest. It's been such a valuable experience, and you really set the bar high. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me.